You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome, everyone, again back to the Grace Saves All podcast. Today, I am happy to have with us Stephen Hawes. He grew up as a child of evangelical missionaries in Bolivia. He studied media production at Florida State University and is an English language teacher who has lived and taught in Bolivia, Spain, and Japan. He loves learning more about different cultures, exploring theological topics, and watching all kinds of great movies. And to that end, one of his hobbies is producing his own movies or documentaries, and he's produced a documentary that has to do with Christian universalism. The name of the documentary is Love Unrelenting, and he's planning on releasing it uh, free to the public in a month or so to YouTube. So welcome Steve Hawes to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thanks. Yeah. Happy to talk to you. Maybe I should say, so welcome Stephen Hawes to the Grace Saves All podcast. Yeah, that's fine too. Either way, I always let people go either way with it. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your uh, growing up with the, growing up as a a child of missionaries and what that was like and how you eventually came to start hearing about the possibility of universal reconciliation. Yeah, so I grew up in Bolivia. Uh, My family moved there when I was three to be missionaries of South America Mission. And I generally loved it. It was fun to go to church there, go to an evangelical school there. I had a lot of great friends, Bolivian friends, Canadian friends, Korean. I was in a missionary community too, so there were people from all over the place, the U.S., Korea. It was generally great. One big problem, though, I would say, is that the teaching of eternal torment was prevalent and really presented as the only option, pretty much. And so I pretty much grew up with the idea that if you weren't a Christian, and in this case, Christian did not include Catholics, if you weren't a genuine born-again Christian, yeah. Oh, yeah, Bolivia is a majority Catholic country. If you're going to be an evangelical missionary there, a lot of the way that it's presented is evangelical versus Catholic. There's not that much of an ecumenical unity there uh, between, although there are some, I'm not going to generalize too much. When the Billy Graham crusade came through, there were some Catholics that worked there. I remember some people talking about that positively, but, but yeah, in general, it's, um, you, you have to be an evangelical Christian to go to heaven. And if you are not converted to being an evangelical Christian before you die on earth, you will be tortured forever. That's the teaching that I grew up with. And of course it wasn't presented that way very often. A lot of times people just say, well, we know what will happen if you don't choose Jesus or well, they will be lost, right? It was a lot of terms used to maybe waffle around the issue a little bit. But at those times where you had explicitly learned it, you knew what they were talking about. You knew that they were saying that these people would be tortured forever, right? So the missionary movement there was was aimed as much at converting Catholics as it was to people who had no Christian commitment. Yes, or also to converting people who had like a, more of a commitment to folk religions. But 
the Catholicism there is in large part nominal. So a lot of times people would use Catholic almost to say, oh, somebody who sort of practices it and goes to church on Sunday, but doesn't uh, actually believe it. They would almost use Catholic in that way, some of the evangelical people I knew. So since in large part they thought, oh, Catholics are just nominal anyway, mm-hmm. they they were aimed at them. But um, I mean, it, that wasn't the way it was laid out necessarily. It wasn't, we have to go convert Catholics, right? People didn't say that necessarily, but they just said, we have to preach the true gospel and most people here don't have the access to that, right? So the the idea is that I need to have, in order to be saved, I need to be saved by having a true faith in Christ. In order, in in order, people to be confident about that, that they need to understand that and and not think that kind of a nominal Christianity, where you're sort of maybe culturally Catholic and you've you know gone to mass some, a few times or whatever, that that would be sufficient. Yes, it was definitely that. Plus, um, not only do you need to have the true faith in Christ, you need to hear it, right? And a lot of times, you know, how will they know unless they hear those sort of verses were quoted? And so the people who did not hear the gospel, they were, you know, written off as, oh, if your grandfather died in this uh, rainforest before any missionaries came, he is being tortured forever, right? They People would hear that message, which I think oftentimes does uh, more harm than good, right? It does not yeah. help the message. But um, that that was that's in large part still what evangelicalism is in Bolivia. It's, it, there's a focus on um, if you don't hear the message explicitly preached, well, then you're lost. You're lost, certainly. And that can be kind of scary, too. So that's so, why I sort of moved into inclusivism. Before I had ever even heard of universalism, I was reading C.S. Lewis, and people like that. And I thought, oh, this makes a lot of sense that Jesus would be reaching out to people who a missionary, a human missionary hadn't ever approached them, but they they still have access to the light that they're given, right? God's grace is everywhere. His light is everywhere. He's reaching out to people. And so, of course, he will make, you know, accommodations to certain people that they can still trust in Christ, reach for Christ, grasping, even if they haven't heard the name Jesus explicitly, or they haven't been given a Bible translated in their language explicitly, right? And a lot of people consider the a lot of the important people in the Old Testament to be uh, examples of that, right? They didn't know about the Trinity. They didn't know about the name Jesus Christ. They didn't know about a death on a cross and a resurrection, but they were still uh, loved by God and in a relationship with God, right? Right. Well, that was, in, in a way, that was kind of, the when I discovered that way that you could be Christian that way that that you could follow Jesus and you could have the benefit of of knowing salvation through Him, but you could also trust that when it came time for judgment, that God would that God would be fair and God would be understanding and maybe if you want to put it lenient, and that would give people the chance to to come home and that God wouldn't be, you know, mean. It would just be, if, if somebody didn't make it, it would just be because they were really, really awful and horrible and didn't want anything to do with love. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a more C.S. Lewis kind of approach. And of course, C.S. Lewis was well-beloved by a lot of the people that I uh, learned from growing up, a lot of my teachers at my evangelical school or missionaries that I grew up with. But it was kind of funny because a lot of the people I knew were uh, reformed. They were either Calvinistic 
Baptist types. The mission that my parents worked for was a Calvinist mission. Uh, but yet they loved C.S. Lewis, who in my mind is very opposed to Calvinism. And yet he says mm-hmm. so many things that are about the beauty of God, about um, that it seems a very consistent and well thought out theology that of course people appreciate him, even if they really wouldn't agree with his ideas about um, well, inclusivism or about postmortem opportunity for repentance, um, things like that. Okay. So then there, there must have been a time when you started to think more about universal reconciliation. So what, what got you moving that direction? Yeah, really, of course, it took a long time. So it was actually fairly recently that I became convinced that universalism was true only less than three years ago. But uh, moving in that direction, I had started to rethink hell, sort of because I did I just didn't understand why an eternal torment would be anything even in God's mind. Why would he allow that? I could understand the C.S. Lewis version of an eternal torment where somebody continually rejects God, even though he continually reaches out to them. But I couldn't understand the kind Mm -hmm. that I grew up with, which is that you're trapped in hell. You're you're shaking the bars of the prison because you want to get out, but you are not allowed to get out. I couldn't understand that kind. So I started to you know, read people like John Stott, Clark Pinnock. And I said, oh, you know, annihilation makes a lot of sense. I think that, you know, it talks about darkness. It talks about fire. It talks about destruction. It talks about death. That sounds like you will ultimately stop existing. So I started to believe in uh, annihilation when I was in college, annihilationism. And I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. And yet I would still be nagged sort of in my, in the back of my mind. Why wouldn't God continue to reach out to people after death? What is it about death that makes people, um, you know, trapped in their condition, right? A Thomist might say, uh, well, you need a physical body to be able to make free choices in the direction of uh, heaven. And so when you die, you don't have your physical body anymore. You're just a spiritual entity that can't make a free choice in the direction of heaven. I hadn't really heard that argument before. I've heard it now. It seems a little contrived after the fact to make an excuse for an eternal torment to me. But I, I, I just can't, mm-hmm. I couldn't see a good reason for why the, the death of the physical body means that God cannot reach us with his grace anymore. So I just sort of thought, oh, this is a mystery. It's a mystery that I have to accept because the Bible just doesn't make room for postmortem repentance. But it was in reading uh, Robin Perry's essay in a book uh, called Four Views on Hell, the second edition, that I said, yeah oh, this actually does make sense. They're just It's true that there isn't a verse that says, hey, post-mortem uh, repentance is available to those who die without having faith in Jesus. There's no verse that says that. And that's obviously one of the main accusations that people make against universalism. But what there are, are many verses that say everyone will be saved and many verses that say that um, death is no barrier for God's love and that his mercy endures forever. And of course, there are many verses that say that, yes, you do have to repent and believe to be saved. And so if you take the three things together, then postmortem opportunity for repentance definitely makes sense. And also if you include the fact that there is no verse that says, oh, death is the end, the, you don't have any opportunities to uh, turn to God after death. There's no verse that says that. So if you include all those things together, uh, universalism does make a lot of sense. 
And so I started to think, oh, okay, Robin Perry's essay presented that pretty well. And one of my favorite theologians, David Bentley Hart, is coming out with this new book right on the topic. So I guess I'll get a hold Mm -hmm. of that book. And of course, once I got a hold of that book and started reading it, about halfway through, I was convinced. So you read, uh, so you read David Bentley Hart, and at at some point, it came into your into your mind that you'd read enough and studied enough that you wanted to embark on a documentary project about this. So how did that come about? Yeah, so I, I had become fairly convinced while reading Hart, and by the end of the book, I was one hundred percent convinced. And then I started to try to get a hold of other books too. Um, not to name too many, but one of them was The Inescapable Love of God by Thomas Talbot. And I started to read that. I really liked it. And I started to try to find interviews with Talbot online. And there really aren't many. I found maybe like two. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why aren't there more interviews with this guy? I, I think he's one of the best universalist thinkers out there. I would really like to interview him. And then I started to think, well, if I if I really try to interview Talbot, you know, try I should try to make a documentary that will really present universalism. And, you know, if I'm going to try to interview Talbot, I should also try and interview Hart and Perry and, you know, anybody else that I can get a hold of who might be able to help present these views in a clear and interesting way. And so then I started to think, mm-hmm. yeah, let's let's do this. Let's try to do it. And whoever I can't get a hold of, well, um, that's okay. And I'll just try to get a hold of as many people as I think might be good for it. So I actually started with the very first interview was in Japan. I lived in Japan at the time teaching English. And it was at a church planted by universalist missionaries in 1890. And I thought this is interesting because one of the primary accusations that people make against universalism is, oh, it will destroy the foundation for evangelism. It will um, just ruin any motive that people have for evangelism because, of course, um, in evangelicalism anyway, a lot of evangelism is motivated Mm -hmm. by saving people here and now from eternal torment that if they go, if you go and get hit by a bus, that's the end. You'll be tortured for the rest of your life. And that's why you need to accept Christ now. And so that's a, since that's such a primary motivating factor in evangelicalism, many people say, oh, universalism, well, that will just make sure that missions uh, just stop being active. But that's not true. This church that was started in 1890 has been there for more than 100 years, of course. And I mean, I can't say it's a huge and very active church, especially since I visited during the coronavirus. But it's Mm -hmm. still there. It's still going. And it still is a universalist congregation that teaches that Christ will save everyone. And that was my very first uh, interview. And after that, I ended up uh, visiting the United States, driving around. I interviewed many, many people. I think there are 26 interviews with different uh, theologians, authors, um, pastors in the documentary. And it's almost two hours long. So I hope that um, I hope it gets people interested in universal and people who are already interested in universalism that they will be able to learn more from it. Well, it, it kind of strikes me that in a way, this is a little bit like a pilgrimage you know, that you went on, that you just went on this, you know, this big journey and that you interviewed lots of people and you had a time to think about lots of things. So what, what was that experience like for you spiritually to be on this kind of documentary pilgrimage journey? Well, it was definitely a lot of fun to travel because I love to travel, but it's true that I was also going to a lot of churches and a lot of um, meeting a lot of people who were, yeah, big thinkers spiritually. And so it was nice to be able to be 
confirmed in the fact that universalism actually makes sense. And it also, not only does it make sense, it has some of the best thinkers on its side, I think. When you talk to David Bentley Hart, and he gets to explain why universalism is not only this biblical and philosophical idea, but it's it's just the most well-grounded logically, and it's the least uh, morally uh, disturbing, definitely, because the other two views definitely yeah. have moral qualms. And then you get to talk to Thomas Talbot and many other people who who they they can point to you where in the Bible it makes sense, how the pieces fit together. And you can say, oh, this isn't just some strange minority view. This is a view that's been around since the beginning of the, the Christian church. And it's really the view that makes the best sense, holds the things together the best, and is um, really where the church is heading, I think, uh, even though it will take quite a long time. But it's really where where the churches uh, that are open to the idea that God really does love everybody anyway are heading, I think. And mm -hmm. so it was nice to be confirmed in that fact. So the documentary is now complete, uh, but you still have a complete, so to speak, you still have a little bit of editing and to do on it, and you're going to be releasing it in a month or two? Yeah, I've set the date for March 20th. The reason that it's not 100% complete yet is because I'm going to get uh, a little bit of voice recording done by somebody. who. There are Bible verses that appear mm -hmm. on the screen sometimes, and I'd like to have a voice read those at the same time just in case somebody's watching it on their phone and, and the text is small or, or you know something like that. It, it can be good to have a voiceover for the Bible verses. And also somebody's writing a song for the credits, uh, and I'm giving him time to write, write that. So uh, just those two pieces are missing, so that's why I'm holding off until March 20th to release it. But yeah, it'll be on YouTube March 20th. And the title is Love Unrelenting? Yes, I was thinking of calling it originally Love Unrelenting Universalism in the 21st Century or something like that, but it became a bit bigger than that in that it doesn't just focus on universalism. Really, the documentary, at least for the first third of it, focuses on all three views of hell. It has a representative of eternal torment, a few people who explain annihilationism. And then after those, after all three views are presented, that's when it sort of shifts into saying, look at how universalism makes the most sense of these three views and look at how it makes the most sense of the biblical data. And look how these critiques by the other two views are not maybe as well-founded as they think they are anyway. A lot of the critiques are more just based on old traditions of evangelicalism, like, the, for example, the one I already said, where universalism discourages evangelism or that uh, mm -hmm. universalism will lead to a moral debauchery or something like that, right? Or that Hitler needs to be tortured forever, right? These kinds of things. The, the documentary also explores those kinds of ideas. Well, I think that this is going to be a really uh, helpful addition to the uh, to the discussion about Christian universalism. I've seen an an advance um, a copy, I guess you would say, of the of the documentary, and I was just impressed by how many different kinds of thinkers and speakers that you that you involved in the documentary, and and that you even involved the views of you know people that were promoting the, or who believe the eternal conscious torment view or the annihilationist point of view. And so I do, I do think that it does a good job of presenting all the views, but since the, uh, the Christian universalist view is the one that's kind of the least known, I think that it also helps people to see how the logic and the, the logic of that view works 
and it gives them some ideas about this. So I think that's going to be, uh, I think that's going to be really helpful. Do you, what kind of goals do you have for the documentary? I mean, what do you hope happens with it? I, I, it impresses me that you, you went to personal expense in order to put this together, but you're not charging, you're not charging anything for it. You're just putting out free on your, on your, you have a YouTube channel, love unrelenting, and it will be on that. I guess it will just be posted on that YouTube channel. Yeah, I'll just post it on the YouTube channel as well. And it was pretty much planned that way from the beginning, um, in part because I don't really know much about marketing or trying to get a movie onto Netflix or anything like that. But I also just thought this is already a fairly uh, unknown topic. I don't think it will have a necessarily a very wide audience. And I also want it mm-hmm. to be something that's easily accessible to people because, well, you know, it, theological truth, I don't know, anytime that I see a book that is marketed as a very groundbreaking message theologically about God and it's cost $25. I think that's so strange. <laughs> if this is, if this <laughs> yeah. is really the truth about God, this is, this is one of the most important messages about God. Money shouldn't be an issue, right? Like it's, that's why there's so many people who give away tracts in the world or, or the, you know, the, what are the names? The Gideons, the Gideon Bible group. They put the mm-hmm. Bibles in the hotels. It's because they really believe that it, you know, the truth about God should be free and it should be, you should just be able to get it. Right. And so I'm hoping yeah. that it's a little bit of that. Of course, you do have to have a computer and you do have to have an internet connection to watch it. But um, at least from my end, I want to make it easy for people to watch it. You eventually found my podcast. You found my book. How did, how did that, did you just find it on the internet or just run across it? Uh, yeah, I think I had seen some people sharing your links on Facebook, maybe that could have been it. I can't remember exactly, but I just know that um, a lot of the people that I ended up meeting, I can't remember exactly how I first heard about them. A number of people that asked me that actually, they're like, how did you, what was the first thing that you saw about me that would make you want to come interview me? And I, and I can't remember, but a lot of times it's because you see something from them and you go, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then you see another article or another link that somebody shared from them and you go, oh, okay, maybe I've heard of this guy before. And then you keep singing, you're like, oh, okay, this guy actually thinks about universalism a lot and he's read a lot about it and he knows a lot about it. So it would be good to talk to him. But uh, mm-hmm. the first thing, yeah, I can't remember for a lot of people, I can't remember the first thing that I heard about them. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how this kind of all, you know, all weaves together. Once you start looking into it, there's so many different things now that you can find out on, on the internet and there's so many different books. My podcast is the only one right now, at least, that's dedicated specifically to this issue only. But there are a lot of interviews out there on other podcasts that touch on the issue of this. And a lot of people are are talking about it now. So I think it's just a conversation that's going to it's going to continue to develop and continue to grow. And, and I think my hope is that we'll kind of get back to like it was in the early centuries of the church where this was a view that was held and it was held by some of the greatest thinkers in early Christianity. And it wasn't back then in those days, it wasn't, Oh, you're a, you're a universalist. It's like, no, you're a Christian, but you just believed in Jesus and you believed in his message about the kingdom of God and wanted to live in that on earth. And we all, all Christians understood that there was going to be some coming day of judgment, but there were, you know, people had different ideas about what that judgment would be. And they, they just read the scriptures differently and they were reading it in the original Greek. And so they, some of them saw possibilities for an idea of, um, of a universal restoration. And some of them saw this annihilation point of view and 
some of them saw ended up seeing this this idea that well maybe there's going to be an, an unending torment. But the interesting thing is that, and it seems like in the early days of Christianity that didn't cause that didn't seem to cause a division between all of them or to doubt each other's, uh, you know, say well you're not a Christian. Yeah, I do wish that we could get back to that. Um, if- what do they call it? And the essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty and all things love sort of idea, right? Which was, I think, a mm-hmm. quote from a guy who believed in eternal torment. But still, it would be nice if the three views could be considered uh, like they were in the early church. Um, three different understandings of the Bible that should, to a certain extent, be allowed to coexist, even though we should be able to argue against both eternal torment and annihilationism, of course. But I can't, um, I can't sign the vast majority of faith statements of places that I would want to work, let's say now that I believe in universe salvation, right? Like I, I used to work at a school in Bolivia, a Christian school mm-hmm. and the faith, uh, the statement of faith that you have to sign before you're hired there said um, that the righteous will go to eternal life and the wicked to eternal condemnation. At the time, I believed in annihilationism, and I thought, oh, eternal condemnation. I think most people here believe this to be eternal conscious torment. I don't, since I believe that people will eventually stop existing. But uh, I can still sign this honestly, right? I could still sign it and mm-hmm. say, yes, I do believe that some people will go tragically to eternal condemnation. But now I can't sign that at all, <laughs> because I don't think anybody will ever go to an everlasting condemnation. I don't think anybody will be lost forever, right? So that is, that is a bit tough that I can't work at a number of places now. Well, that's, you know, in the early in the early centuries of the church, uh, you know, a universalist would be able to affirm e- eternal condemnation because by that, the, the Greek word would have, you know, eternal would have been aeonian and condemnation would have been colossus. So they would have thought, yeah, you're going in in the age in the coming ages, you're going into a, a condemnation, a, a type of correction in which you will meet with the redemptive judgments of God. So it's funny that you can, you know, if if you look back even over how the early church fathers are quoted when they are translated into English, you can find these early church fathers, the ones that were universalists, even talking about eternal condemnation. So it's a problem in translation, but I think we're kind of now starting to starting to understand a little bit more about how you really need to look into the Greek, the original Greek, and the words that they were using for condemnation and for time to understand, to get a better understanding of how that all works. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I do know somebody who did that. She worked for a mission organization, and she believed in universal salvation, and they said eternal uh, condemnation or something along those lines. It was eternal something, eternal punishment, something like that. And she signed it believing, well, the way I use eternal is different from the way they use eternal because I'm using it in, you know, the Ionios kind of way. But I would feel, I I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that just because I know that everybody there would understand eternal to mean everlasting. And so that's why I wouldn't want Mm -hmm. to do it. But of course, yeah, it is translated eternal often enough. And in some ways I wish it wasn't just because these days, the way that at least in the US that I know of, people use eternal as almost uh, 100% synonymous with everlasting, at least casual people on the street, right? Right. If we were to use it in the platonic way of the sort of, you know, pertaining to the eternal, then yes, the punishment is pertaining to the eternal and that it has to do with God, um, the, the, the one who 
is the source of eternity and such, but it isn't uh, an everlasting punishment. But since so many people use it that way, that's that's why I would just feel kind of bad signing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I'm hoping that as this conversation continues to continues to develop, people develop more nuance about how the language is being used. And, and I think also, too, that I think we're getting to a time when, you know, people are refusing to be sort of browbeaten or threatened into a, into a spirituality. And the thing that about the, this early vision of the God who is restoring all of creation that we find in the early centuries of the church is that it's just such a beautiful vision that once you hear it or once you start really contemplating it, uh, you just sort of feel naturally drawn to it. I mean, it's just sort of like you're just like you just kind of want to look at a beautiful sunset. You just want to look at it because it's beautiful and you want to contemplate it because it's beautiful. And then you start to realize that that's changing the way that you're thinking about God and about the world and about and about other people. At least that was my experience once I started once I started going this direction. I I just had a very strong internal confirmation that there was just something that lined up about all of this. It just felt like my spirituality was all lined up. And then I found that that there were other people that were feeling lined up in the same way spiritually. I could find them in the early centuries of the church. And there's, you know, there's, I think there's increasing numbers of people now who are feeling lined up in this way. Yeah, definitely. And it definitely makes the most sense to me, not only of like Bible verses, right? Where I grew up, um, Bible verses were, you know, the thing, you know, if you couldn't get a Bible verse that was your proof text sort of then, then it would be, a doctrine that was very difficult to convince people of, but there are a lot of things that mm-hmm. I think once you, once you are convinced by the verses that are there, there's so many things that universalism not only makes sense of, but it really is beautiful. Like you were saying, like something that I thought of sometimes, you know, you're on a trip, you're going, well, I just did a trip, right. And you meet people, uh, interesting people. You only get to talk to them for an hour and then they have to go their way and you go your way. And they're just people you run into and you never, see them again here on earth. And you know, in your mind, you know what, I'm never going to see that person again here on earth. But what you can do, if you're a universalist anyway, is you can say, but I'm sure that I will see them again someday. And then they can tell me more stories. And then they can, I can ask them anything else that I was hoping to learn from them, because you can learn a lot from them, especially people that have very strange and foreign experiences from your own in some other country or in some other job, right? Uh, something that you wish that you could, or that's not even part of your world, but that you wish that you could learn more about, especially from them, because the way they tell it is, is better than the way anybody else could tell it. And only universalists can say, Oh, I'll see them again. And I'll, I'll be able to talk to them again. Yeah. That's even helped me like with people. There are some people that take a real strong exception to my Christian universalism or they're very, you know, they want to preach a real strong doctrine of eternal torment and, and, or, you know, just people that you run into that just seem, you know, such a different wavelength. And at least the way I think of it now is, well, I don't have to get mad at them or upset with them. You know, they're just, they're just on their path. They're on they're they're trying to probably do the best that they can do. And I'm just trusting that there's going to be this coming time when all of our illusions or falsehoods or, you know, half truths will finally be taken care of. And we'll finally all be on the same page together and we won't have any interest in holding anything over anybody's head that they did 
before. We'll just all enjoy being together in God's grace and mercy and love. And um, for me, that just makes me feel really hopeful in this world. It keeps me from getting mad or angry or wanting to be judgmental or hold a grudge against anybody. And then I, now I get to live in the kingdom of God on this earth and have the peace and the joy and the happiness of all of that. So it just, to me, it's just a wonderful kind of spirituality. It's fun to get to, it's, you know, when I got to meet you and we got to have that interview in, um, together. And so you make a connection like that. And, you know, even though like we live in different parts of the world, we can still check in with each other from, you know, time to time and keep up with, um, keep up with each other. So I definitely want to, uh, get back in touch with you. Um, let the, let the documentary, uh, get out there for a while. And then I want to check back in with you and see what kind of response you're getting for it. And, you know, the kind of things that you're maybe learning and, and coming into as you get on the other side of that. Uh, so look forward to visiting with you again, maybe in a year or so, and we'll see what, what the documentary has done. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. I hope uh, a lot of people get to see it. I know some people who um, are not uh, believers in universe salvation will be upset with the way that I edited it and the way that I present some ideas, but I think that it's honest or at least I, at least I believe it's honest. So I'm trying to be honest. And I also think that um, it's true that universalism is just the best understanding of God's character and uh, his plans for the world. So I really hope people enjoy the movie. All right, Stephen, we'll, we'll be looking forward to the documentary Love Unrelenting, which should be hopefully being released in March of this year. And God bless you and, uh, and blessings on the rest of your day. Okay. Thanks. You too. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.